Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Today we are indeed talking about the sixth commandment in the list of ten, which is the command not to murder. So if we were content with just a basic surface level understanding of this command, today's teaching could be the shortest teaching in the history of the world, right? I would just say, hey, let's not murder. And all of you would probably say, cool, we were already planning on not doing that. And we actually prefer not getting murdered, so we'll just keep on not murdering. And then I would say, God, please help us keep not murdering each other. And I would say, amen, and then we would all go to brunch. And that would be the end of our time here this morning. That could be what we did this morning. Uh, But most of you know the Bible well enough to know that it's not always that basic or surface level in its understanding. And most of you know me well enough at this point to know that I don't really do short sermons. So we're going to go a little bit deeper than just a surface level reading of this particular commandment, including getting into some potentially very challenging ideas before we're done. But at the end of the day, truth be told, this probably is one of the commandments in the list of 10 that makes a good bit of logical sense to us as modern people, at least on the surface. It's quite obvious to most of us that a society can't really function well if people feel complete freedom to murder anyone they want and if there are no consequences for people doing so. However, while it seems obvious to us that murder should be prohibited, not all societies agree with that perspective, including our own society in the not-so-recent past. So I'll remind you that just a couple hundred years ago in our country, in the U.S., people used to have duels with each other. Like that was a real thing that happened. That's not just in Hamilton. Like that was in real life that that happened. Like Wild West style duels with one another. People in this country actually thought that was a reasonable method of conflict resolution with each other. So if if you disrespected or dishonored someone, you would then stand with your back to them holding guns, and then you would both take some amount of steps forward, and then you would turn around and take your best shot at murdering the other person. Like, people would watch this happen in the city square as entertainment. Some of the people who, who literally wrote our nation's founding documents, the ones that we abide by to this day, thought, yes, this is how we will resolve our differences in America. We will have duels which I personally just have all kinds of questions about. Like, was there no one who spoke up and was like, hey guys, what if when we're irritated with each other, we like punch each other or open hand slap each other or call each other really mean names or really anything other than murder, maybe. Let's try something else in this situation. But evidently, some people were like, nope, 
that person said something mean about my dad, one of us must die today. That was the overall approach to relationships at one point in our country. So all of that to say, believe it or not, our society is actually not all that far removed from functionally disagreeing with this command from the Bible, the one about not murdering. People back then were actually very okay with murder in certain scenarios, and in some ways, I would argue, we're actually still fairly comfortable with it today. More on that as we move through the teaching. So as common sense as this commandment might seem to us on the surface, I would argue that the sixth commandment is actually still very needed, very relevant to us today in a number of different ways, all of which we'll get into before the morning's over. So let's just start by reading the command one more time. I think Eric did a great job reading it from memory. Let's just reset. Let's read it one more time. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. You shall not murder. To murder is to take human life. It's to decide that another person's life is not worth continuing and then taking decisive action against them in light of that assessment. The sixth commandment is a statement from the creator of human life saying that you and I are not allowed to take human life. And the reason that we aren't to do that, according to the Bible, is actually very intentional, very well thought out. It's because according to the scriptures, there is something distinctly different about human life from all other types of life in existence. So if you start reading in Genesis chapter 1 of the Bible, you'll read about how God creates all the other types of life on the planet. And in almost every creative act, as he creates animals, God brings forth that life from the earth itself. He, he says things like, let the water bring forth living creatures, or let the land produce living creatures. God brings animal life out of the earth itself. But then... When he creates human life, it is an altogether different method of creation entirely. So read with me on the screen. This is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, notice this next part, God created mankind in his own image. The image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So when creating human beings, everything God says about them sounds way more personal in its intention. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He doesn't tell the earth to bring forth people. He doesn't tell the waters to bring forth people. He says, I'm going to do this. I am going to make these creatures. Humans will be made in my own image, my own likeness, which means humans are altogether different from the rest of creation. Genesis chapter 2 actually gives us even more detail on this idea. If you continue reading through the creation story, if you've never read the book of Genesis before, just FYI, Genesis 1 is kind of like the overview. It's sort of the big picture, 30,000 foot view of God creating everything that we know. 
But then Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter, zooms in specifically on God's creation of humanity, gives us even more detail about that specifically. So there we read about God creating Adam, the first human being, and there we get some specifics on just how distinct human life actually is. It says this in Genesis 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. The the very breath of God himself causes the man to come alive. That is at least part of what it means for humans to be made in the image of God. They have divine breath in their lungs. The theological term for all of this is imago Dei, meaning image of God. Humanity is distinct and different from the rest of creation in that humans bear in themselves the very image and breath of God himself. But then, just two chapters later in the story of Genesis, the first thing that a human takes from another person is their life. You might be familiar with the story of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. As the story goes, Cain was angry at his brother Abel. He was jealous of him. And because of that anger and jealousy, Cain murders his brother. He he takes his life, takes the breath out of his lungs that God put there. And God immediately confronts Cain about what he's done, saying this in Genesis chapter 4, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God so values human life that when Cain kills his brother, God says that his brother's blood cries out to God from the very ground. We see no mention of a response like this when any other creature is killed in creation because God's connection with humans is different. The value he places on human life is distinct such that when the life of a human is taken, God feels it. It it grieves him to his core. It angers him. We see that in the account of Cain and Abel. We also see that in the life of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John. When when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, Jesus, the creator of life, who knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in the very near future, still wept after Lazarus died. Human death brings tears to the very face of God. The point being, human life is sacred to God. Humans have inherent dignity and worth given to them by the God who created them. And all of this is actually the heart behind the sixth commandment, which means that do not murder is not just a commandment about care and harm. It is that, but it's not just that. It is a command about the sacredness, the sanctity of human life. Human life is set apart. It's distinct. It's different from the rest of creation. Human life is sacred to God. It belongs to God, which means we don't get to decide of our own accord to take it away. It belongs to him. It belongs to God. Now, to some of us, maybe this raises some practical questions about what all counts as murder. 
Like if there are ever any exceptions to the rule. So things like killing in the context of a war, serving in the military, things like killing in an effort to defend yourself or to defend others who can't defend themselves. Things like capital punishment in various types and forms. And I think those are very important questions to ask. If those things specifically are burning questions on your mind when you hear about a command like this, I would say feel free to come talk to me after the gathering. Feel free to shoot me an email via the website. I'll be glad to point you to some resources to study further on all of that and discover what the scriptures teach on all of that. But for today, here's all I want to say in response to those questions. Whether or not the Bible condones taking a person's life by any of those means... At bare minimum, I think we can say that as followers of Jesus, we should never be eager to take anyone's life, regardless of the circumstance. Best I can tell from the scriptures, there's really no place for a follower of Jesus to say or to think things like, I can't wait to join the military so that I can wipe out some terrorists. I hope someone breaks into my house in the middle of the night so that I can use my gun on them. I'd love to see some drug dealers get executed by the state. As followers of Jesus, it's hard to make the case that we should ever be excited about the death of a fellow image bearer of God. Might it be necessary in some situations? Maybe. But should we rejoice in it, look forward to it, celebrate it? Never. Not as followers of Jesus. I say that in part because the scriptures teach us that even God himself, who values justice far more highly than us, who sees it far more perfectly than us, even he, we are told, does not delight in death, even the death of wicked people. Take a look with me at Ezekiel 33, verse 11. says it like this. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their evil ways and live. God never delights in the death of human beings. When a person's death means that they can't continue to commit evil, I think we can be grateful that the evil will not continue, sure. But that is different than celebrating death itself. Human life is sacred. It is precious to God. That's true of the most faithful follower of Jesus down to the most wicked, depraved person that there is, All of them have the breath of God within them, and that should, on some level, impact how we think about and interact with them as a result. Does that make sense? Okay, so beyond that stuff, what should this commandment, the sixth commandment, mean to us at sort of a practical, everyday sort of level? What does this command, not to murder, mean for us as we wake up tomorrow morning and we go to our jobs or we go to class or wherever it is that we go? What does this commandment practically mean for that situation? For that, I want us to take a look at what Jesus had to say about this particular commandment when he expounded on it in the New Testament. So this is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You can turn there or we'll put it up on the screen. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. So that's the sixth commandment stated verbatim right there. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I, Jesus, tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which was an ancient insult, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, another insult, will be in danger of the fire of hell. 
So Jesus starts by referencing the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, but then he dials it up a notch. He says that if you have a deep-rooted, unaddressed anger with another person, you are actually liable to the same judgment as a murderer. You see, God has always been most concerned with our hearts. Not just with how we behave on the surface, but with our hearts that drive and motivate our behavior. So in biblical terminology, God is not just concerned with the fruit. He's also concerned with the seed that becomes the tree that bears the fruit. So here's a sermon soundbite for you. Murder is the opposite of sex. Write that down and then you're going to want me to explain it a little bit. It's the opposite of sex. Sex is the extreme unification of a relationship to the point that it creates life, or at least has the potential to. Murder is the extreme deterioration of a relationship to the point that it creates death. Murder is the furthest extreme of a relationship breakdown which is why Jesus doesn't just say in Matthew chapter five, hey guys, do your best to not end up murdering each other. That's not what he says, that's not his instruction. He actually goes further than that. He says, don't even let the seed of murder stay in the ground. Don't even let it stay there unaddressed. Pluck it up before it even has a chance to become a tree that bears the fruit of murder. Deal with the anger, the resentment in your heart wherever it exists, such that it does not turn into something worse. That's Jesus' instructions. So did you know that the frustration, the self-righteousness, the resentment in your heart right now towards somebody else in your life is actually the seed of murder? Did you know that God takes it that seriously? Did you know that your anger and bitterness towards that person at your job, towards that family member of yours, towards that person in your life group, did you know that that is where the fruit of murder comes from? In fact, I think sometimes we even reveal that connection between anger and murder in the language that we use to describe our frustrations with people. So when somebody frustrates us, we might say something seriously or in jest like, I swear I could kill them right now. When a relationship has gone sour and we want nothing to do with that person anymore, we might say something like, that person is dead to me. Anger is the seed of murder. And even if you think about some of the most horrible atrocities in human history, this is often where they start. A coldness, a residing bitterness, a resentment towards a particular person or people group in the world, a belief by some that that person's life or that person's way of life is the problem in the way of my life flourishing. And the end result of that line of thinking, if it goes unchecked long enough, is wanting to remove, wanting to take the life of that other person so that my life can continue flourishing as I want it to. And that's the point Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 5, that a heart posture of anger or insult or devaluing the life of another person can and absolutely has led to some horrible outcomes. Now, just to be very clear, I am not saying that I am actively worried about most of you guys going out any day now and murdering someone because you're angry. I don't think that's the situation that at least the bulk of us are in. 
But I am saying, and I think Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5, that some of us do not take relationship breakdowns in our life seriously enough. I am saying that all of us are capable of holding the seed of murder in our hearts, of, of nourishing it, of cherishing it, maybe even watering it at times. Some of us have become entirely too comfortable with the anger and resentment that we hold in our hearts towards fellow image bearers of God. People who carry in them the very breath of God and are sacred to God. Some of us could stand to take those types of situations and those postures in our heart far more seriously than we do right now. That's Jesus' point. So maybe it's anger or resentment towards your spouse. Maybe it's towards roommates that you live with. Maybe it's towards people you work with. Maybe it's just people you know of that are on the other side of the political aisle from you. People on the other side of the world from you. Could be most anybody. But any time that I hold in my heart the belief that another person is less than me, that their mistakes, their weaknesses, their failures, their sins against me make them less worthy of dignity and more deserving of my wrath. And any time that I decide I am the rightful judge of another person's value, the rightful judge of their worthiness, that is the seed of murder at work. That's the point Jesus is making. And whether you ever act on it or not, Jesus says, you will be liable to judgment for it, short of him intervening in your heart about it. So packed into this command to not murder in the sixth commandment are all of these implications of seeing ourselves and seeing others rightly, seeing the true sacredness of other people's lives and seeing our own humanness, our own not-godness as well. All of us are capable of holding the seed of murder in our hearts. All of us are capable of regarding human life as something less than the sacred, unique work of God that it is. And all of that is what the sixth commandment is warning us against. So if you think about it, the implications of the sixth commandment and the ideas contained within it are actually massive and far-reaching. This means that the sixth command includes in it the call to uphold the value of every human life made in God's image. Every human being you meet, everyone you interact with, everyone you go to work with, go to class with, live with, all of them are human beings made in the image of God and are to be treated as such. This is why the scriptures are filled with instructions for God's people to care for the poor, for the oppressed, for the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan, because all of those people belong to God. They matter to him, and therefore they should matter to us. This is why virtually everywhere the kingdom of God has broken through in the world, everywhere the church has gone, along with it has generally come ministries of mercy, caring for the sick, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the displaced foreigner. This is why for years scholars, both Christian scholars and non-Christian scholars, have concluded and insisted that the vast majority of our own nation's emphasis on care for the poor and the disadvantaged, all of that is due primarily to the influence of the church and the church caring about those things. 
This is why Christians step in to serve those who are marginalized and cast aside. It's why we serve the poor and honor them in whatever ways we can because people in poverty are made in God's image and are sacred to God. It's why we speak up about the historic and at times present mistreatment of people of color in our country because they carry the very breath of God in their lungs and are sacred to him. It's why we create space in our church for the addicted and the overwhelmed and the broken to pursue hope and recovery in Jesus because those people are made in God's image and are sacred to God. This means that your boss at work is sacred to God. Your most frustrating, irresponsible coworker or employee is sacred to God. The person who cut you off in traffic on the way here sacred to God. The annoying person in your life group is sacred to God. Your in-laws are sacred to God. Your political enemy is sacred to God. The life of the presidential candidate that you are presently most outraged by is sacred to God. And while we're on the subject, you are sacred to God too. You see, this is what makes suicide so tragic. It is a person who carries the very breath of God within them who has somehow come to believe that things would be better off if their life was over. Human life, all human lives, including your own, are sacred to God. As the psalmist wrote so vividly and beautifully in Psalm 139, For you, he's talking to God here, you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Some of us have come to believe that somehow, for some reason, you are less than, unworthy, unloved, Some of you have been told that you were an accident. You are not. I don't care what type of planning your parents did or did not do. You are not an accident. God had a plan, and it involved you being alive and in the world. It involved you being uniquely you. He knit you together as you are in your mother's womb, just like Psalm 139 says. The scriptures tell us that before you were even a fully formed person, God set his care and his attention and his affection on you. So at this point in the teaching, as we talk about the command to uphold the value of human life, I do think it would be pastoral negligence if I did not at least bring up the topic of abortion. And I do understand that that may mean I am about to swat at a hornet's nest. I'm fully aware that that is possible. I'm fully aware that it would be much easier for me not to bring it up, given how divisive it has become in our society. But I honestly do not think that the scriptures afford me that option. So here's how I'd like to navigate it. I'd like to start by offering a handful of disclaimers and caveats so that you can understand what I am and am not attempting to say. First, upon bringing this up, no doubt some people will think something like, oh, here we go again. 
Christians harping on the one, the only issue they seem to ever care about. It seems like all Christians want to talk about in the public square is abortion. And on that note, I'll go ahead and acknowledge that I too am often frustrated at the tendency of some Christians to talk about this one issue nonstop. It is in fact not the only issue that we should care about as followers of Jesus. It certainly should not be something that we talk about more in the public square than we talk about the gospel. And it's at times, some Christians have done that. They have misprioritized this issue above things like the gospel. But that said, I do not think it is fair to categorize me or us at City Church as an example of such Christians. Here's why. We have been a church for seven years now. And to my knowledge, we have never talked at length about abortion other than just mentioning the word a couple times. Some would argue that we should have by now. Maybe they're right. But regardless, to say that we are just getting on our soapbox and talking about the thing that we always talk about would not be an accurate description of our church. So I would just humbly ask that you not put us in categories that are not descriptive of us. Second disclaimer, some would say that since I am a man, I do not have any right to speak about the morality of abortion. The thought is that this issue impacts women far more than it impacts me, so I therefore should just keep my mouth shut on the subject. And on one level, I agree with the assessment, at least. There is zero doubt that this issue impacts women far more substantially than it impacts me. But at the same time, I am also neither Jewish nor German, and I still would like to maintain the right to say that the Holocaust was morally wrong. Most of us are neither Jewish nor Palestinian, and I think it matters that we speak up about the morality of what's happening in that region of the country right now. I don't think you have to be directly involved or impacted to speak to the morality of things happening in the world, and I don't think you think that either. Facts are not male or female. Facts do not have a gender or an ethnicity. Facts are facts. Third disclaimer, I have worked very hard to say in the next few minutes exactly what I intend to say. I'm going to read off the page, literally. I am not going to say things that I don't mean, and I'm not going to mean things that I don't say. So I would humbly ask that in your response, you not assume that I meant things I did not say. If I meant something, I would have said it, and if I didn't say something, it's not fair to assume that I meant it. Fourth and final disclaimer, my hope in what I'm about to say is not simply to disagree with you or to assert that you or others are wrong about this issue. My hope is to persuade you. You'll notice that persuading someone is a much more difficult objective than just disagreeing with them. So if nothing else, maybe that will cause you to root for me as I speak because I'm an underdog shooting for the stars. So with those disclaimers out of the way, here's what I'd like to say on this subject. I'm going to give you my conclusion, and then I'll give you my reasoning. My conclusion is that an elective abortion is the unjust taking of a human life and is therefore a violation of the Sixth Commandment. That's my conclusion. Here's my reasoning. 
An unborn baby is a human life. It is not another species. We have no examples on record of a life beginning as a human fetus and then becoming a different species by the time it is born. Nor will we ever have an example of that because that's not the way that it works. An unborn baby is inside its mother's body, but it is not a part of its mother's body. It has its own DNA, its own unique genetic code, it has its own blood type. At eight weeks of gestation, all of the baby's organs are present and forming. The brain is functioning, the heart is pumping, the liver is making blood cells, the kidney is cleaning the fluids, the finger has a fingerprint. At eight weeks, some babies recoil at pain. So the brain is already receiving signals that say that hurts. It is human and it is alive. If finding bacteria on Mars means that scientifically there is life on Mars, then scientifically a fetus constitutes life in the womb. I realize there is some debate out there about when life actually begins. To be sure, an unborn baby is very reliant on its mother for survival, but so is a six-month-old baby. And I don't think any of us want to say that six-month-old babies are not human beings and don't deserve to live. There are some adults who are reliant on the help of others for their survival. I don't think we want to argue that they are not human beings because of that. An unborn baby is less developed than a baby out of the womb, to be sure. But similarly, a five-year-old is less developed than a teenager. They are not somehow less human because of that fact. An unborn baby is very small, but size should certainly not determine value. My wife weighs far less than I do and is noticeably shorter than me. I don't think any of us want to insist that that makes her less of a human than I am. I would argue that the conversation surrounding abortion actually should hinge on this one important question. Is abortion the taking of a human life? That actually is the question we have to answer. Because if it's not the taking of a human life, then yes, obviously the rights of the mother take precedence over what's in her womb. If it's no different than an organ in her body, then yes, she has the right to make whatever decision that she wants to make. But if there is a human life in her womb, if it's a living being that God has literally set his affections and his attention has put his breath within, well, then that changes everything. And I would say I am not compelled in the slightest by arguments that a baby in the womb is not a human life for all of the reasons I just mentioned and far more. And more importantly, I don't think God is compelled by those arguments either. Based on passages like Psalm 139 that we just read, I think it is very clear how God feels about even the unformed substance of a human life. Now, practically, if you are bothered or frustrated by anything that I just said, I would invite you to send me an email via the website and we can talk more at length about it. You don't need to vent to your life group or your life group leader about what I said because they didn't say it, I said it. And you can talk to me about it. I will be glad to hear you out on any biblical reason that you think you have for believing otherwise. Now, if you have other reasons for believing otherwise or for not liking what I said, political reasons or societal reasons or cultural reasons, I think you're going to find a discussion with me fairly unproductive on this. I'm not a politician. I'm not a lawmaker. I'm not even a doctor. I am a pastor, which means it is my job to teach you what the scriptures teach when that is culturally popular and when it's not. 
But if you have biblical reasons for believing otherwise on this, I will be glad to hear you out. I'll be glad to have that discussion with you. But with all of that said, at the same time, I understand that in a room this size, there is a very good chance that for some of us here today, abortion is not a political or a societal issue as much as it's a very personal issue. Statistically, just under one in four women will have an abortion by the time they're 45 years old, which means there's a very good possibility that many people in this room have wrestled with this question at a personal level. Some of you may have been in a situation where abortion felt like the best option. Some of you may have been in a situation where it felt like it was the only option. Some of you may have been in a situation where medically you had to choose between your life and health and the life and health of an unborn child. And I personally cannot imagine being in that situation. I cannot imagine having to make that decision. So I want to be very clear that none of what I just said is an attempt to shame you or make you feel less than or heap any additional guilt on your shoulders. It is simply an attempt to bring moral clarity to an issue that sometimes people think is cloudy. If you personally have had an abortion or have considered one, what I want you to hear this morning is that nothing, and I do mean nothing, puts you beyond the reach and grasp of the love and grace and compassion of the Father. If you spend much time in these scriptures at all, you will notice that God has quite a habit of reaching into the darkest situations and breathing his life into them. Some of the people in the Bible that God chooses to rescue and redeem and use for his kingdom purposes were guilty of far more and far worse than having an abortion. Because one thing God does is that he breathes life into dust, literally and metaphorically, in all sorts of different ways. And regardless of what you have done in your life, regardless of what decisions you have or have not made, nothing that you have done can disqualify you from any of that. No one can disqualify you from any of that. If anyone tells you that your life is somehow less valuable to God because you have made the decision to have an abortion, they are actually the ones that do not understand the heart of the sixth commandment. So today, as we wrap up, here's what I'd like to invite all of us to do, regardless of our story, regardless of the decisions that we've made, regardless of our perspectives on any of this. Here's what I'd like to invite all of us into if we are followers of Jesus. I'd like to invite all of us to join Team Sixth Commandment. For us to all be on the side of valuing human life, all human lives. Born and unborn, rich and poor, all races, all colors, all ethnicities, all backgrounds, people we get along with and people that we honestly don't. People that vote like we do and people that vote nothing like we do. People we really enjoy hanging out with and people that annoy the snot out of us every chance they get. And the list goes on. Because you see, when you derive your understanding of humanity from the opening pages of Genesis and the Bible, the only logical thing to conclude is that every human life bears God's image on it. 
all of them. Every human life contains in its lungs the breath of God, which means that every human life is deserving of dignity and respect and compassion and care without exception ever. And when you follow Jesus, you give your life to someone who opposes death in all of its forms. But not only does Jesus oppose death, he actually overcame death on our behalf. In the kingdom of God, even death does not have the final say. Look with me on the screen at Romans chapter six. It says this. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Part of the reason that Jesus went to the cross for us is to show us that in his kingdom, even something as horrible as death is not final. It isn't forever. It's a doorway into eternity to everyone who knows and follows Jesus, which means that death in all of its forms, murder, abortion, sin, bitterness, war, conflict, violence, suffering, and anything else you can think of along those lines, all of those things have an expiration date in the kingdom of God. Their demise is coming. And when you follow Jesus, you get to know that you get to live in a world forever without any of those things. So every week after the teaching, we go to these tables all around the room and we take the bread and the cup. When we do that, we are remembering the moment that Jesus' death struck a fatal blow to death itself. Jesus once said, as he ate a version of this meal that we're about to participate in, he once said to his disciples, I will not eat of this bread and drink of this wine until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So the next time that we eat this meal with Jesus in the flesh, it will be when death is gone forever. So until then, we practice and we hope for that day. We look for any way we can to bring the realities of heaven to earth. And we say as we take of this meal, come Lord Jesus and make it all new again. Let's be done with death forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for sending him on a rescue mission to seek and save that which was lost. And God, we thank you that a crucial part of that mission was for him to strike a devastating blow to the reality of death in our world. You gotta think of the prophet Isaiah describing death as the shroud, the sheet that enfolds all peoples in the world that we currently occupy. God, in the world we live in, we look around and death and all of its effects seem to be everywhere. Tons of examples of it on the news this week. 
death and the reality of death and its implications seem to have impacted everything around us. God, some of us personally have felt those impacts recently, the death of a friend or a family member, the the reality of the news of an incurable illness. variety of different ways we come face to face with the reality of death every single day. And so God, in, in light of that, how important it is that we cling as tightly as we know how to the one who has defeated death for good. God, we grieve that death has entered our world. We know that wasn't a part of the plan. God, we grieve the ways that we have participated in death, big and small. God, even just our anger, our refusal to deal with the resentment and the bitterness and the self-righteousness that lurks in the corners of our heart. God, we grieve the ways that we have participated in death, that we have fought you on your design for life and healing and growth. But God, we find hope in the fact that none of that can push you further from us. God, we thank you that you enter into our various situations and our various struggles and our various paths and journeys with you. And you you enter in and you breathe life into dust, just like you did at the beginning, just like you always do, that you sent your son, Jesus, into the world to even submit himself to the reality of death and brokenness that is all around. But that God, as he did that, he set into motion this plan to defeat it all forever on our behalf. Think of his words in the gospel of John. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. God, thank you for breathing life where we have brought death. And we thank you that you, through your son Jesus, invite us into this journey of bringing more and more of the realities of heaven to earth through our relationships, through our heart postures, through the ways that we interact with other people, the ways that we address the sinful postures of our heart, through all of that, we get to participate with you in bringing more of heaven to earth in ways big and small. And so God, we ask for your help. We ask that you would empower us. You would fill us with your spirit to do precisely that. So God, as we sing, as we respond, as we participate in the bread and the cup, God, would you breathe life into our dust?
Would you make us more like you? And would you help us to leave behind every single way, every single posture that is not reflective of you? Would you give us freedom? Would you set us free? Would you take the shame and the guilt off of our shoulders? And would you give us instead hope and life? God, we are not capable of doing any of that on our own. We need you to do it. We need you to step in. And so God, that's what we ask for. That's what we're desperate for. Would you come and would you move in us individually and communally? Would you make us more like you? Would you bring life?